Welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this is a weekly show that explores the intersection of security, technology, and humans. I spend 5 to 20 hours a week consuming books, articles, and podcasts, which I then turn into a concise 15 to 30-minute summary and analysis. There's a summary episode every week, as well as periodic standalone episodes that are either me sharing an idea on a topic or discussing one with a guest. The goal is twofold, to keep you up to date on the absolute latest in security and technology, and to explore ideas that hopefully give you something to think about. All right, in this episode, I talk about election security with retired Air Force Major General Earl Matthews, who's the Chief Security Officer at Vroden and who has been thinking about election security for over 20 years. We had a pretty wide-ranging conversation taking us through the ultimate goal of election attacks, the Iowa debacle, and the likely motives for foreign intervention into U.S. elections. So with that, I'm happy to bring you my conversation with General Earl Matthews on the topic of election security. All right, welcome, General Matthews. Thanks for coming on Unsupervised Learning. Yeah, Dan, thanks very much, and uh, happy Friday to you. So I will have already introduced you on the show, and uh, looking at your background, it looks like we actually both worked at HPE. Oh, that's awesome. At same, about yeah. the same time? I think it might have been, yeah. Uh, it was, was it called ESP at the time or ESS or something like that? Um, no, I, so when Enterprise I Enterprise Security it, Products? Uh, ESS, yeah. I belonged in ESS. That's right. Yeah, so I worked for Jason Schmidt um, in Fortify and for Ryan English in Fortify and Demand. Wonderful. That, I tell you what, I'm still in contact with, with Jason and, and others, and I think Fortify is still an outstanding uh, product. I recommend it still today. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. I guess, tell me how you got started in uh, election security. I, I assume 2016 was probably a catalyst of some sort. Yeah, and uh, it's actually, you know, my military background, um, elections have been front and center. Uh, most of my entire career, uh, adult life, I voted, you know, via absentee ballot. And it actually really started piquing my interest in the, in 2000, right, when we had the hanging chads and what mm. the impact was at that time about, you know, supposedly all these absentee ballots from um, the military kind of swaying the, sway the vote and hadn't been counted. And then many years later, I find myself in the in Germany and I am responsible for all the postal distribution throughout Europe uh, that comes by air and the army then would be responsible for it by, you know, trucking it out to all the different bases. But I really had to focus in on election years because after the 2000 elections, we had to account now for all the ballots that were coming into the military post offices overseas and actually mm. tracking them to make sure that the people who got, you know, voted and then put it back in there, it got delivered on time. And then just as an aside, my wife also works in the, uh, IT sector, and she was helping um, with the first e-voting. Um, this is in, you know, in the mid-2000s uh, uh, for military folks. So I have been associated for a long time, and now that, you know, after 2016, and that um, all the inference on, you know, infrastructure security, but really about the disinformation and how it's being used, 
really got my attention um, leading up to that up to that election. And so now today, you know, social media is really my biggest concern on disinformation. And you know, and we've seen social media really start take a hold of this, start deleting accounts. And I firmly believe that um, you know, social media companies should be accountable. That the accounts that are being created are truly uh, real accounts, and they're not being done falsely. Yeah, absolutely. So, are you familiar with uh, Rene Daresta? Yeah, I am familiar. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, really interesting. She she does a lot of work on the social media stuff and the both the misinformation and the disinformation. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things she talks about is how difficult it can be to lock onto a bad account because what they'll do is months before the campaign, they, they create a legitimate account with like legitimate sounding, um, you know, username or whatever. And then they go in and they drop tons of content related to that particular thing. So let's say it's cars or fast cars or car modifications. It'll be months and months and months of a precedent of legitimate content uh, just so they could trick the algorithms that look for, you know, pure misinformation. Yeah, but when those accounts get generated, what I would say the corollary to that is, is that you have to supply name, information, telephone numbers, and things like that. And okay. The more obscure that that becomes, I think should be an indicator to a social media platform that something isn't exactly right here. And I think it's also interesting, yeah. perhaps for your listeners to understand that 61% of all the traffic on the internet is actually created by bots and not by humans putting content on there. And of that, about 30 some percent are actually nefarious bots that Mm. get created. So not what we're going to talk about today, but I just think it's an interesting factoid that actually, you know, more than 60% of the traffic on the internet is not human created. Yeah. Interesting. And what would you say most of that traffic is, is that like clicking on YouTube links, like trying to vote up content on Twitter is it voting type fraud or like what type of bot activity is that? Yeah. So I would say most of that bot activity is just taking information from one location and then moving it to another location or trolling where news organizations are uh, continually looking for new types of uh, news stories that are being out there, whether they're generated by me putting up a video or that another news organization has has put up there. And so it's just they have these algorithms out there just to go get that information and, and uh, so forth. Okay, that makes sense. So cr- crawlers, uh, yeah, scrapers. Yep, that type. You yeah, sure. Awesome. And I noticed in researching some of your work, you had some tenets. You had five tenets. I have them here, but if, if you would like to go through them. Uh, the first one was stop making assumptions. The second one was transparency. You want to talk about those? Yeah, and I think that um, what our listeners really don't, you know, have a hard time struggling with with all these new exposures of our information is that there really isn't anything new, right? That's happening here. Most of it is coming from you know mis- misconfigurations, and part of that is just because we start assuming that um, things are actually working like they're supposed to be, and the security mm-hmm. controls really aren't doing that. Um, I think there's a lack of transparency, right, in how the electronic voting uh, companies are uh, letting us know about the vulnerability of, of their platforms. I think there's a lack of software independence 
in the voting machines and third parties. And but you know, I think it's gotten significantly better since, since uh, 2016. But I just think the whole quality assurance piece of what happens uh, to these proprietary systems just aren't, aren't there for us. Yeah, and you've got here mandate transparency from commercial hardware software companies. Uh, many of these are transparency-based. Uh, data-driven evaluation of providers that mm-hmm. provide the technology. Alignment between state CIOs and CISOs and secretaries of state. Um, these all seem really solid. And continuous and quantified evaluation and validation of security controls. I think these are fantastic recommendations. Yeah, and probably for our listeners, uh, they may not you know, well understand that, by the way, all elections are run by the states. They're not run by the federal government. Yeah. That the voting piece of this falls underneath the Secretary of State and not underneath the governor's day-to-day routine business. And so as a result, there hasn't been a very tight alignment between the state CIOs and the state information security officers with the Secretary of State's election state committees. So I'm a huge fan of those organizations coming together. And I'm seeing that I've seen it in Michigan. I've seen it in Indiana. And then in Iowa, we just saw that the chief government security officer for the state has now um, resigned from that position and actually has moved over to the Secretary of State Election Office to help them with cybersecurity. So this is, and that has primarily been because we haven't been treating our infrastructure as a holistic problem. We've been looking at it in isolation. Interesting. So is that similar to like a jurisdictional problem, not quite at the scale of like 9-11, but where you have different groups and they're not designed to work with each other and therefore the information's not being exchanged? Is that kind of what you're describing with the Secretary of State versus Governor's Group? Yeah, I think it's, you know, uh, traditional stovepiping uh, of functions versus the co-mingling of functions across an organization. And, you know, you and I saw this at when we were at uh, HPE2. Things got siloed off and then yes. left hand doesn't know what the right, or what the right hand is doing. Mm-hmm. But I think that since um, 2016, we've seen a significant change in all of this because of the one, the designation of elections being a critical infrastructure. We've seen the DHS create a special office for elections and elections or um, day oversight. And we've seen the U.S. government create the U.S. Election Commission. And then we've also seen the federal government designate funding for states, uh, specifically for uh, election security. So I think it's got, I think it's gotten better. Very interesting. I guess so. You currently work at uh, is it Veridin or Verodin? Veridin, probably. Yeah. Yes, Veridin, <laughs> and uh, that's a common mispronun- you know, mispronunciation of, of the organization. But uh, it comes from the god Veritas for truth. Oh, nice. And the god Odin for wisdom and battle. And what uh, Odin would do is send out dogs and ravens to collect intelligence about his enemy and then bring that intelligence back, and then he would go into battle, which is why he was so successful. Mm. So I consider ourselves the Warrior Truth Company, um, because what we do is we instrument your network 
looking for your security controls uh, current uh, instantiation. Are they working like you're, they're supposed to be working? And we do that by running live malware in your production environment to give you the no kidding truth. This is how my controls are actually working. Um, so that's what Veridin is about. Nice. And Veridin is now part of FireEye, is that correct? That is very true. So last summer, we were uh, uh, one of the few cybersecurity companies that gets acquired, and we uh, were acquired by FireEye, uh, which is really considered the number one threat intelligence company in, in the world. And Mandiant is a part of FireEye that does the most incident response around the world, and our platform runs off of intelligence. So it was a superb marriage for us now um, in this space. That's fantastic. Thank you for asking. Yeah, and... Um... Actually, I, I knew I recognized the name Veridin, and I looked it up. It's actually one of my favorite spaces in all of uh, security tools. I, I love the idea of continuous checking. So I, I guess, can you go in a little more detail about how it works? Like, do you have a sender and a receiver, and you sprinkle these throughout the environment, and then you send malware from the sender to the receiver to see if it's caught by various controls, or how does that work? Yeah, you've described it. You've nailed it. <laughs> you could be a spokesman for <laughs> us. Uh, and what is it's all automated, you know, software driven. And what we are really attacking is like the number one problem, which is post cyber And uh, so we are both the attacker and the target. We, we sit in your operational environment, but we're not on anybody's operational assets, meaning, you know, if you have a server that has customer data on it, we're not sitting on that server. We just look like a virtual image of that server with the same security controls. And then as the uh, and then we put one in another side of your network, whether it could be external or it could be internal to look for segmentation. And then the you know the management console tells this actor to go attack this other actor. And we know that it's uh, successful or not successful because we are controlling both the originating in, uh, IP address and the target IP address. And if it makes it from one end to the other, we know that your security stack didn't block it. And then what we do is we produce all the data to show what in your security stack could have blocked it, but you don't have it configured correctly to be able to do that. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to let everyone know who's listening, this this is not about the, the, the vendor thing. So um, we have lots more questions about elections itself, but I, I think this is important. And and I actually want to ask you, does this interact at all with election security devices? Like, do you put it on a network where polling devices are and use this technology to defend elections in any way, or is it unrelated? No, you would actually put it into the segment in which those voting uh, polling devices are going to be located. And then what you would be doing is just assessing that the controls that are protect to protect that voting device are actually working like they're supposed to be working because many of these um, voting devices are connected to and you know either a, a separate network or an out-of-band network and you need to make sure that what's on the network from a defensive staff is actually doing what it's supposed to be doing okay that makes sense so you're you're basically looking at the health of um, the networks and the connectivity around that environment. So it's not like running an agent like on the voting machine or something like that and looking at yeah, it from yeah, the, the voting machine, standpoint. That's right. The, the voting machines have enough 
going on yes. up there and they don't need any more uh, heavyweight things put on there. Speaking of that, what did you think about the Iowa situation? Yeah, and uh, so this was you know really fascinating to me. I belong to a Forbes Technology Council, and I was immediately uh, sent a note by uh, another member who's on the council, and you know, there were like five or six of us in this little dialogue. And as soon as I got it the next morning, uh, I just it was easy for me to respond back. I, I knew in my heart that it was not because of the cyber vulnerability. Mm. I spent a lot of time in software development, and you know, I was a CIO myself at U.S. Transportation Command. And what always happens in software is that there's a rush to finalize the code. Mm. And then that generally leads to a lack of amount of time for the testing organization to do their full vetting of it before that app goes into production. Sure. That was my first suspicion, and that actually, that's the one that actually turned out to be true. My second suspicion was that there wasn't enough um, data sets available for them to actually go do the testing at scale. Mm. And we see this all the time. Uh, it doesn't matter how large an organization is. Having that real production data, it gets hard to come by. And then my third suspicion was there was no never a dry run of the entire system from end to end. Mm. So it turned out that the number one, hey, this rush to get there, actually happened because they did so fast and then never three turns to do a dry run with that. Interesting. With that application. Yeah. 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 Now, MIT has done a review of their code now and they found all these other vulnerabilities, but that wasn't the cause of the problem on, on Cautious Day. Interesting. How do you see the relative threats of overall incompetence? Like you said, just not necessarily incompetence, but like software is hard and it's complex and there are lots of failures versus a lack of transparency into voting versus actual mm -hmm. foreign like intervention into the system. How do you stack those as, as threats? Well, I would certainly stack number one, foreign intervention through either mis or disinformation using social media uh, platforms as being the number one threat. Um, to, uh, and that is primarily because I think we've done a very good job for this show about addressing the hardware and software pieces of it. And to your point, software is never going to be perfect. Um, so that's how I would say that's the, the order of, the, of, those, of those two threats. Because when we look at the voting process, Dan, it's actually pretty simple. You have an eligible voter, you have one vote, and that vote is to be kept secret. And then what happens is we have a chain of custody, right? And it needs to be an end-to-end -end, uh, verifiable structure. We have to guarantee integrity uh, of the, uh, and then that the ballot was actually cast, was collected, and it's been counted. And now we need to verify yeah. it. That's, I mean, it's a pretty pretty simple thing, actually, in the end. Interesting. What would you say, I, I actually agree with you for the record, but what, what would you say to somebody who says, well, yeah, there was foreign interaction, you know, interference with the 2016 election, but it didn't seem to have that much impact in a tangible way. I'm not sure we have great data on that. I think a lot might be conjecture, but let, let's say it wasn't that much of a, a tangible impact in 2016. How would you respond to yeah, I, those numbers? Yeah, I, I would say where it had the most tangible impact was creating divisiveness between groups, Yeah, right? 
So uh, that's where it had the biggest impact versus, you know, pitting, um, you know, the, the Republicans versus the Democrats are actually influencing, you know, the election through the voting infrastructure itself. But certainly creating dissent and animosity amongst groups played, played a big role in it. And um, that problem is not going to go away. And we've looked and have tracked this now since the early 2000s. And then, you know, specifically from 2014 up to uh, earlier this year, we've seen them uh, in the Philippines. We've seen it in the U.S. elections. We've seen it in France. We've seen it in Kenya. We've seen it in Russia itself. We've seen it in Catalonia, Honduras, Cambodia, Mexico. We've seen it most recently in Hong Kong, or not Hong Kong, in Taiwan in their elections. Mm. So it's really our viewers and your listeners really have to pay attention to what is the source of the information and the media outlet that they're getting their data from and how they're making their decisions. That's what I would say that we have to just be smarter in that that regard. Yeah, I think that's crucial. It it seems like we could end up in November of 2020 with half of the country thinking the election was stolen, whichever way it goes. What do you think we have to do to be able to address that? Yeah, I don't think that will be the case. Um, what I think more importantly, right, will be this whole issue on where did I, where am I getting my my news media from, and where am I getting my information from? What are my you know trusted sources of that? And I think people have to educate themselves on getting them you know familiar that hey, there is a evolving threat landscape that is trying to impact the way that I think and what it is that I read, and that if I'm only getting my information from one source, I'm probably likely to get the least amount of right information. So it should be get kind of get cooperated. So I think people should try to get their news from you know well-established news organizations versus some pop-up site that has created something because they don't really don't know, you know, what's behind that, sometimes behind it. Uh, so that would probably be the, the biggest thing. And then the second thing is that there are a lot of actually online resources that our voters, if they are concerned about the voting infrastructure um, that they can go to, such as uh, the Center for Internet Security has a great um, election place. The Belfer Center at Harvard University also uh, has one. And then you know, the DHS also has uh, you know, an election services place where people can read up to, you know, make themselves more confident that, you know, things are being addressed and that we will have a secure and uneventful vote yeah. season in 2020. That makes sense. To me, it all combines, though, into like a single threat, right, which is a single goal for the attacker, which is to reduce the legitimacy of the U.S. government in the mind of its citizens, right? And it's all about this polarization. And there's actually a conversation about how – a lot of social media networks are trying to optimize for predictability in in the user, right? They actually don't want someone who's going to mm-hmm. not be sure what to do with a piece of content. They want someone who's definitely going to like or hate something. And when we're training the algorithms, yeah. we're actually training them to teach people to be more um, polarized, which is, which is kind of scary. And, and that's why I think 
I, I think we do have to worry about the, the 2020 situation because it, it's one thing to say, well, we should just take better sources. But I, I think the problem is if they believe they have good sources, they're not going to search for better ones, right? And if, you know what I mean? So it's like okay. basically, uh, the, the, I think it was Hitchens that said, if you have someone who doesn't accept evidence, there's no evidence you could provide them to convince them. Correct. I would yeah. agree wholeheartedly with that. Right. And so again, I just, yeah, you're, there's no way you're going to come back. I have no, no way to offer any solutions in that regard. In, in my personal view, what we're seeing here are classic, psychological mm. operations being done at scale to influence uh, elections. That's far none. That's, that's, that's what's happening. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, wh what do you think are the main threads? Like, wh what are the main messages that they're trying to, like, advance? I mean, what we've saw before in 2016, it was very much along the lines of what you said earlier, which is divisiveness. So they would find these niche groups that um, felt very strongly about a small topic, and then they would inflame the the counter side. In fact, they they organized a, a physical one in Texas. I, I'm sure you've heard of this one, where they they managed to bring protesters from both sides of a topic and arrange them in the same physical location, presumably to try to create an actual physical altercation. But it seems like they were doing that over and over with various yep. topics. So that that seems to be one, like a tactical view to do it at a small scale for a small number of issues and get people really riled up about a specific thing. But it seems to me like there's an overarching, you know, a, a strategic narrative, which is you can't trust the, yeah. the election system because it's all bad and it's all fake news. And that just makes people want to check out. And it also makes them want to not accept an outcome if they don't like it. Yes, uh, to all of that. And the grand strategic play that's being done on the world stage, in my view, is that Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, right, are trying to create this decisiveness so that we will end up with in this position of, that hey, we've got all these things happening at home, we're not going to engage anywhere else overseas when something else is happening, right? That we normally might get involved in, um, but we're going, hey, we've got too much at home to handle, or we, we don't can't divert our time and energy to focus on those other world parts. That's I, really I what agree, hundred percent. I think they're basically trying to get us, basically trying to get us out of the global theater because we're too consumed with our own internal strife so that whoever can step up, right? I think particularly Russia would love to see that happen so they could regain some of their previous glory, right? That, yep, that's exactly right. But don't discount the, you know, the, the Chinese in, uh, in this either, uh, especially within their region of influence, right? Mm. So uh, Hong Kong specifically, Taiwan, Vietnam. I just saw a news report right the other day, you know, saying that you know the Philippines, you know, might back out of a you know defense protection, you know, pact. I go, that's dangerous for us if that if that's to happen. Mm. Uh, in my personal 
personal view. But so the Chinese are going to be heavily targeting elections within their within within the uh, post Asian region. So um, while we focus a lot on the, on the Russians and our own, the Chinese are actively doing this in, in Asia. Oh, that's a great point. And then they could potentially do the same thing internally with causing strife internally, because that would be one less person aggravating them overseas, telling them not to do those things. For example, if we were so consumed with our own problems, maybe we wouldn't notice or wouldn't be able to act if they went into Taiwan. That's right. That's exactly right. And then if we look at the Middle East, right, the Iranians are heavily involved in election hacking, too because they're trying to influence what's happening, right, with the, with the Gulf states and, you know, cause um, uprising, uprisings there, too. Hmm. So it's a world problem. It's just a world problem, and, and, the, and the governments have got to come together. Now, one of the things that, you know, maybe some of our listeners aren't going to be happy about, that, about what I'm going to say next, but, you know, our next um, really evolution to, into this, you know, kind of coming back to the Iowa piece is, uh, mobile voting. I am a huge fan of having the capability to do mobile voting. Interesting. Um, and that, you know, as I described my military background, I spent a lot of time overseas. Most of my career, I did absentee voting. I would love to be able to just vote at the time and place of my leisure. Uh, if I'm deployed, you know, somewhere in the world or assigned somewhere in the world, we have a lot of you know, expatriates, right? U.S. citizens living in foreign countries this day, or you just might be on vacation. Uh, how awesome would it be that you could just use your phone to be able to go vote? Yeah. And I, it's, it's coming. I think um, blockchain is a technology that will help us in that regard, which is, you know, really totally auditable. It's immutable and it's very transparent and it's secure. Uh, we saw a couple of states in 2016, I think West Virginia and Virginia, you know, test drive it. Um, and then, you know, then part that will probably get most people hires. I'm, you know, I'm just a fan of the national digital identity. Why mm. shouldn't I have, well, have one, I have a passport, I have a driver's license, I have to prove all this stuff already. And when I log on and I want to buy something that, you know, Target, well, why shouldn't Target know that, hey, yeah, it's Earl Matthews. Right. Here's his national identity. Yeah. Mm. Okay. OK. What do you think about that, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about this. This is very interesting uh, that we got onto this. I was very much of the same opinion for many years that why don't we just move to digital voting? Like, this is silly. You know, it's uh, we have all this technology. Why don't we just do it? And after attending the Enigma conference for a few years, I mm -hmm. attended multiple election security and actually digital election security talks. And I came away from them with my mind changed. Basically, all of them, actually all of them said, we are nowhere near ready. I wonder if it's not possible to say we are ready or aren't ready, because it depends on the population that you're talking about. It, it depends on the technology you're talking about. But when you mentioned yeah. the national ID, I think that would be a critical prerequisite, because Right now, we just have a giant mess of different IDs, like who, who's going to actually make sure that it's you. But what, what a lot of these talks actually talked about was just how easy it is to break these systems, how fragile elections are already, and that if you moved it to the digital world, you would just have even more questions about integrity. 
than we have now? Well, what I would say is that in anything that we do in the electronic age is going to have some type of risk associated with it because nothing is truly secure. Yep. And you know, you're a, you're a longtime practitioner in this space as I am, mm-hmm. and you know that even closed networks are not closed networks. Yep. So it de- depends to me is how big, how much, how let's assess what the risk is. Then let's figure out how would you, how do we mitigate that risk and, you know, go, go from there. Yeah. That's what I would think. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I do think it's inevitable and I do think it's where we should be going. I, I think the question is really just the cadence and what has to happen first. I, I think as we talked about earlier, ultimately the, the target for the attacker is trust in the system, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. if we moved into digital voting, that would have to be paramount on our minds is like, how do we, if it was some sort of blockchain thing, which somehow blockchain seems to have dropped off the radar in 2020, it seems like fewer people are talking about it, at least in my circles. But, yeah. but yeah. if you were to have a record of every single vote that was done by the different different people and be able to say, yes, it was done on this device with these parameters and here's how they authenticated to that device. And here's the the way we could tell it was actually them. I mean, if we had a full life cycle like that, that was, you know, cryptographically verifiable, I, I think that would be a great step. Um, and, and I do think it's yeah, inevitable. Yeah, and I don't think we're too far away from it. I mean, I've, mm. I've, I've not gone to any of those to see what the, you know, the, the Enigma conference, you know, what they're saying. Um, but I would say if by the next, you know, in the next four years, significant progress will be will be made in, made in, in, in that. Um, if you think about it, right, every day we, almost every, a lot of America, almost every American, lots of Americans, sign on, do their banking every single day. If they're comfortable enough with that risk, right? Why would they be comfortable enough with taking the risk to be able to in, have my phone encrypt, you know, what download the whatever app my state says is their app. And, it's, it gets, and then when I vote, it gets encrypted, goes back to that central database and then, you know, gets, gets deposited. Um, any different than the way that they're logging on to make a deposit from you know, their phone to their bank today. Yeah, 100%. I, I think that's why it comes down to the populations, right? I mean, people in our, our circles, I think, and people listening are going to be 100% able to do that and probably be able to do it securely. But I think there are other populations, the elderly, disenfranchised groups who maybe don't yeah, have true. access to the same tech. And then you have to worry about, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm in security, so I'm always worried about everything. But it's like, now you start paying people for votes. So the actual vote is 100% correct, but they were somehow encouraged to do that. Although you, could, you, you yeah. could do it already in, in the current voting booth. So I, I think yeah. Uh, yeah. that's still possible now. But I, I, I would say that your assessment on that risk, right, is exceptionally notable that we have to pay attention to that, right? That That certainly could drive up or even outweigh anything else that we're talking about from a cybersecurity perspective, is that it's a lot easier to get people to be influenced to be able to go vote for that, yep. right? The way that they want to have it done. 
And that alone may say we never get there. I don't know. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I, I guess, are you optimistic uh, going into this very crazy uh, 2020 election year? Are you optimistic for this upcoming election and beyond? Yeah. So as a recap, I'm very optimistic that the voting companies, the machines, and oversight by state officials is heightened like it's never been heightened before. Where I'm less optimistic is our ability to be able to detect when there is an, an, enough disinformation out there that is causing uprisal um, and uh, consternation amongst our American pop population to pit mm -hmm. them against each other. That is what I re will remain concerned from, from the whole year, and I will be watching media very closely to see, the, see how that happens. All right. Well, General Matthews, it's been great having you on, and uh, really appreciate the conversation. And again, I appreciate you uh, inviting me to come spend time with you here in this podcast. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsupervised Learning. I believe the ads are not just annoying, but that their incentive structure is toxic to the content creation process. So if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it directly for just $5 a month or $50 a year, which is two months for free. UL members get the newsletter each week instead of just twice a month. They get access to the archives. They get access to the UL Slack community, where we share ideas and links about the topics we discuss here in the podcast. They also get access to the UL Book Club, where we pick a book a month and talk about it live as a group. To become a member, just head over to danielmiesler.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much to everyone who's already a member. Each of you is helping support a model of content creation that we really need right now. And I appreciate you greatly. We'll see you next time.